What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul, only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task? I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are fellow workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through, through the flames. You do not know that you yourselves do you, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you if anyone destroys God's temple God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred you together are that temple do not deceive yourselves if any of you think that you are wise by the standards of this age you should become fools so that you may become wise for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Evening all. Lovely to see you again, and also good to see some new faces who I've not met before. I hope to meet you afterwards. Please do stay for tea and coffee and um, whatever snacks and refreshments have been provided across the way. It would be great to meet you. Uh, Also, just to note, um, I see one or two with with young children, obviously too small to join the classes. That's great. We uh, love that you're with us and that your kids are with us. If you need to um, go out for a bit during the service at any point, um, the vestry, which is the room just behind me, through this door and immediately left, uh, is warm, the heaters are on in there, and it's available to you if you need a space to go. But please don't feel the need to go, it's just if you want it, it's available to you. Um, well, I'm going to pray briefly, and then we will get into the text for today. Well, Father, we to give you thanks for the gift of your word that has come down to us, inspired by your spirit, written by your apostles, transmitted, cared for, protected, guarded, passed down through the centuries to us. What a gift. Now, Father, would you give yet another gift? By your grace, would you open the ears of our hearts to hear your word? Would you do in us, by your Holy Spirit, what only you can do? Change us evermore into the likeness of Christ, by your word. Amen. Amen. Are you not mere humans? Now, there's a, a strange question, isn't it? I wonder how you'd respond if, uh, if you went to one of the elders or to any group leaders. Say you went to, to Peter or to Jim for some counsel, 
Um, and they asked you in a tone that suggests that you might not be on the right side of the question, aren't you behaving just like a human being? Well, what would you say? What's, uh, what's the right answer to that? Well, that's the question the Apostle Paul asks the Corinthian church just before this passage that Ella read for us. Uh, verse 3 of chapter 3, are you not acting like mere human beings? And again, verse 4, are you not being merely human? A strange question indeed. Well, what else could they be? Well, you remember that Paul has already set up this great dividing line down the center of humankind. On the one side are the wise, and on the other, the foolish. On the one side are the natural, and the other side, the spiritual. And the natural person is simply one who does not have the Holy Spirit living in his or her soul. And the spiritual person is one who has received the Holy Spirit. And it turns out, against all expectations of human reason, that the wise are not those who are the most intelligent, astute, cultured, sophisticated, successful in the ways of the world. And the foolish are not those less intelligent, less world-savvy, less sophisticated. No, that's not what wise and foolish mean in God's world. Wise and foolish are only about how you respond to Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus Christ on the cross is the line that divides the world and all mankind. If you see on the cross no more than a dying Jew, nothing really special, then God's judgment on you, no matter how many degrees you may have, is you fool. You might be wise in the eyes of the world, but a fool in the reckoning of God. But if you look to the cross and you see on it the love, the grace, the power of God for your salvation in Christ, then God's verdict, no matter how, or no matter where you rank on the scales of the world, is wise. The foolish and the wise, the natural and the spiritual, the merely human and those in whom the Spirit dwells. So when Paul asks the Corinthian church, when you behave the way you've been behaving, are you not being merely human? It's a frightening question. Which side of the line are you on? Which side of the cross? Does the Holy Spirit live in you or not? Don't treat continued immaturity as unimportant, he's saying to them. It could be a sign that no true spiritual life was ever present and that your profession of faith is empty. And we need to hear the gentle warning in Paul's question. But Paul did know which side of the cross they were on. Brothers, he had called them earlier in this chapter. These were his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he knew the reality of their profession. More than brothers and sisters, in chapter 4 he says he's their father in the faith. And right here in chapter 2, uh, sorry, verse 2 of chapter 3, I fed you milk when you weren't ready for solid food. He cares for them as a mother breastfeeding her baby. He knows the reality of their spiritual birth in Christ. And of course, being breastfed milk is good and right and healthy when you're a baby, but there's a time when you need to move on to solid food. So what is the solid food and what is the milk? Well, milk is teaching that starts a proud sinner on the path of humility and hope. It's the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified that brings at once hope and humility. It's the message, as one preacher says it, that you are more sinful and flawed in yourself 
than you ever dared believe, yet at the very same time you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. Milk is the humbling truth that your sin is so great that it cost the body and the blood of Jesus to atone for it. And milk is the hope-filled truth that he did indeed atone for it. Well, what about solid food then? What's that? Well, let's start with what it cannot be. It cannot be anything that could be reason for pride or for self-reliance or for thinking yourself better than a brother or sister in Christ in any way. That would go against the whole thrust of what Paul's been saying so far in chapter 2, that the way of the wise in Christ is the way of the cross. It's the way that says, I want to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the way that says, I will be content with weakness and fear, with loss and with lack, with the appearance of being a fool, all for the love of Jesus Christ and his church. So solid food cannot be anything that runs against the way of the cross. It cannot be something that you need to be the cleverest to grasp. It cannot be anything that needs you to be more than or better than anybody else. In fact, solid food is for those who are content to be, who in fact delight to be less than, to be lower than, to be servants of all. For those who want to boast only, as Paul says at the end of chapter 1, in the Lord. So as a father in the faith, as a wise pastor, Paul calls the church towards maturity. And in the rest of chapter 3, he lays out something of a pathway, a spiritual roadmap towards maturity. He calls the church, he calls us, he calls you, to see differently, to live differently, to hope differently, and to show differently, to see, to live, to hope, and to show something different, marks of spiritual maturity, to see differently than merely human eyes can see, to live and to hope differently than merely human hearts hope, and to show something different than merely human lives show. So what do you see? How do you live? Where is your hope? What does your life display? Let's take those one at a time. First, in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 3, Paul calls us to see differently, to see what merely human eyes cannot, or perhaps rather will not see, the absolute sovereignty of God. What is Apollos? What is Paul, verse 5? Servants, nothing more, just servants. Servants through whom you believed, yes. Servants who told the message of their master. Servants who were instruments in their master's hand, yes. But as the Lord assigned, the Lord God alone is the giver of life. Salvation belongs to him alone. Don't look to us, mere servants, Paul is saying. What are we? We're just farmhands. I planted seeds. Apollos watered them. Can we make the seed live? Can we, Apollos and I, can we give life? Can we reach through the veil of the world into the realm of eternity and bring the spiritually dead to life? No. God and God alone is the giver of life. Who looks at a seed-sowing farmhand out in the field 
busy about his work, dirty and sweating, or if he's an English farmhand, freezing and covered with mud, and that his friend coming along behind him with a watering can, watering where he's just planted, who looks at those two farmhands in the field and says, now that guy's an impressive seed planter? And the other says, maybe so, but just look at that other guy's style with the can. Man, I've never seen anybody water dirt with such class. It's ridiculous. They're friends, fellow farmhands, working together in their master's field, simply doing the job he gave them to do. And their master will reward them, not according to how much the plants grow. They don't control the sun, the seasons, the power of life. None of these are in their hand. The master, God, gives life. God gives growth. Farmhands will be rewarded for their faithful labor, and we should honor them for their labor. In a letter to another church, Paul writes, Respect those who labor among you in the Lord. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Yes, we honor those who labor, but life is God's to take and God's to give. Salvation belongs to him. So what should you see as you look around the life of this church? Well, you should see God sovereignly at work through all his servants, through all his farmhands, through those who dig holes and who fetch spades and who plant seeds and who build scarecrows, those who push wheelbarrows and mend tractors, through all the Lord's farmhands. Respect them for their labors. Yes, but boast in the Master, the Lord God, the giver of life. See what merely human eyes will not see. The absolute sovereignty of God over all of life, both natural and spiritual. See with Holy Spirit-enabled eyes, not merely human eyes. See differently. Now he changes the metaphor from the end of uh, verse 9. You are God's building, and we, we farmhands, we servants, we are laborers, part of the construction team. But that's all we are, just laborers. It's not our building. The church belongs to God. You, saints, belong to God. I laid the foundation, Apollos and others are building on it, but we're all just laborers. And all that matters about us is whether or not we build with the right materials. It's the materials that matter, the building itself, in other words. In fact, the materials matter so much that God, the owner of the building, will judge us very strictly if we use the wrong stuff. Why? Because he cares for his church. God loves his church, built on the foundation of Jesus Christ crucified and raised on the teaching of Jesus Christ crucified. And that means, on this path to spiritual maturity, that when you see what the church fundamentally is, then you must and you cannot but live differently than merely human hearts want to live. You see, if the church is not only built on the foundation of Christ crucified, but also built of the material of Jesus Christ crucified, that's the gold and the silver and the precious stones of verse 12. But what is that teaching supposed to do? In the life of the church, what is teaching and what is it for? Well, remember that teaching is both teaching doctrine, teaching the Bible, teaching the gospel, and showing what a life shaped by that doctrine 
by the Bible, by the gospel, looks like. In Paul's own words, here in 1 Corinthians in chapter 4, you'll remember, I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you, do you remember, of my ways in Christ. And you may remember what he wrote to Timothy himself in another letter, encouraging him to continue faithfully in gospel ministry. Continue in what you have learnt and firmly believed. Well, what had Timothy learned from Paul? He tells us just before that verse, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my sufferings, my teaching and my conduct, my doctrine and my life. So what is teaching in Paul's mind? It is both doctrine, Bible, theology, and it is the example of a life shaped by that doctrine, by theology, by the gospel. I wonder if you would turn with me in your Bibles um, quickly to 1 Timothy chapter 4. That's 1 Timothy chapter 4. Um, And perhaps if somebody gets there in one of the red Bibles, if you could just shout out to me the page number so I can let others know. 1 Timothy chapter 4 from verse 11. 1192. Thanks, James. 1192. I want you to see this, friends. I, I, I so want you to see that this is not just my personal theological infatuation. This really is what the Bible says. If you read with me from verse 11, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Paul writing to Timothy, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, faith, and in purity. Do you see that? Command and teach and set an example. Until I come to you, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Skip ahead a verse. Be diligent in these matters. Be diligent, in other words, in teaching the Scriptures and in setting an example. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress, your growth in holiness and in joy. Watch your life, your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do you see Set an example for the church, Timothy. Watch your life and your doctrine. Let your growth in holiness, your growth in joy, your growth in the ways of Christ be evident to all. Persevere in both. For if you do, if you both teach doctrine and model Christ-like life faithfully, you will save yourself and your hearers. So what is teaching? Life and doctrine. And what is it for? That those who hear you and watch you will grow up in the faith, that they will grow in Christian maturity. So when Paul, uh, we're back in uh, 1 Corinthians now, when Paul says that those who labor in God's building must build only with gold and silver and with precious stones, he's saying that by life and by doctrine, Those who teach must teach Jesus Christ crucified so that the stones of the building, that is you, will be Jesus-shaped stones. That's all that matters in the end. 
Everything else will get burned up in the fire. All the programs we run as a church, all the ministries that will grow from the soil of this congregation of saints, all the money we will invest in Christian mission, all the meetings and the Bible teaching and the prayer and the Sunday clubs and all we do, if they aren't to the effect that we grow in Christ-like maturity, they're all for nothing. They'll just be ash at the bottom of the fire one day. I hope you see, friends, he's saying more than that as believers we fit together to make up one building. He is saying that, no less than that. That is true. But he is saying more than that. He's saying that we, as individual stones in the building, must be Jesus-shaped stones and that our life together as a church must be a Jesus-shaped life. Let's not deceive ourselves, he says. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 18. The world parades heroes and gurus. The world wants to impress with polish and with power. The church of Jesus Christ must be shaped from the inside out by the great reversal of the cross. The cross that turns all preening and parading and display and better thanism upside down. But the cross is not the end of the story. Jesus rose to life again. And so we have a different hope than a merely human hope. A sure hope. In Christ, all things, verse 21, all things are yours. Not only all good and true teachers in the faith, but the world and life and death and the present and the future are all yours. All things that now enslave and oppress and tyrannize you, the world that tries to squeeze you into its its shape that demands your constant attention as if there were no new and perfect world to come. Life, mortal life that cries to be treated as if it were worthy of ultimate devotion, as if the Bible did not tell you that this mortal life is but a vapor that is here for a moment and then gone. Death that circles you, an inescapable power, that tells you that all you have is this one lap of the track. And so the constant urgency of the present and the constant worries of the future combine to steal your joy and draw your gaze away from God who holds both the present and the future in his mighty hands. But in Christ, this passing away world is a gateway to the eternal world to come. And we, in Christ, no longer belong to this world. In fact, it belongs to us. For we are the heirs of God who owns everything. This present life is not to be clung to. Rather, we are free in it to give ourselves away in self-forgetful service of others. Death holds no fear for us in Christ. The last enemy is defeated, and we long, like Paul, to be home with Christ. The demands and the urgencies of the present are not sovereign. In Christ, we are free to choose what is good, what is right, what is best, to give ourselves to in the present. And the future holds now no fears. For our days, 
every one of them, are in his mighty hands. We have in Christ a different hope, a sure hope that merely human hearts cannot know, but that the Holy Spirit confirms in our hearts. And because we see not merely with human eyes, and because we hope and we live differently than merely human hearts hope and live, so we show something different than merely human lives show. For you, verse 16, for you, the church, are not just any building. You are the temple of God and the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. The temple was, in ancient Israel, the place where God was present on earth. And when Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. So when Paul says, the place where God is now present on earth is in you, the church, and a predominantly Gentile church at that, it's a staggering claim. God has chosen to be present now in the world, in this fallen world, through a specific community of human beings. But not merely humans. No, we are a community of those who live at the foot of the cross. At the cross where all our better thans are forgotten. At the cross where we are fed the milk of the gospel that at once humbles us and fills our hearts with hope. We are a community of people who see differently, recognizing and celebrating the sovereignty of God in all things, who live differently and who have a sure and certain hope, and so display through our lives hearts shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. With all ours, with all this ours in Christ, is it any wonder that every standard by which we measure ourselves any better than another in Christ is just out of place. More than out of place, in fact. It flies in the face of the gospel. To such behavior, Paul is right to ask the frightening question, are you not being merely human? But you are not merely human. You are the church of God in Kenilworth sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. Would you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Our Father, we give you thanks for your grace, the grace by which you effectually called us from death to life. We were unable to save ourselves. We had no desire to save ourselves. We were enemies. You came after us, enemies, rebels, dead, and you saved us. And still you save us. You sustain us moment by moment. Our mortal bodies, our beating hearts, our breathing lungs, you sustain moment to moment. And more amazing than that, you sustain our hope. You keep our faith in Christ alive. If it were not for you keeping the eyes of our hearts open, we would be gone in a moment. A vapor in the wind, gone. You are sovereign over our lives, over our salvation, over our eternity. 
Keep us, Father, living at the foot of the cross, seeing differently, hoping differently, and showing the world the reality of your Holy Spirit, alive and active in this community of people, such that Kenilworth will see and many will come to know and to love the Lord Jesus as we do. Give us this joy, Father. We do have a different hope than the world does, and one of them is the is this, that many who are lost right now, as we are here now, would be saved, that you would give us the joy. Give us the joy. Allow us to share the joy of heaven by seeing the dead come to life in this town. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.